Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, we know that you are sovereign over all things. That you are the God who gives and takes away. That you are the one who provides for us in all things. So Lord, today I pray that as we look to your word together, that Father, you would speak to us. That we would trust more fully in you through this time. Help us, Lord, to delight in Jesus Christ today. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm going to start by saying that pieces of decoration may fall while I am preaching. Do your best to ignore it. Take it as what it is. It's evil spirits trying to take your attention away from the word and focus in. Or bad tape. Or the fact that this building is, this area is covered in paneling, which you can't tape anything to anyway. But either way, try to keep your focus on the word. Turn if, the building could be sinking a little more, that's true. Turn if you would to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. And we are beginning our study today through the book of Ruth. We're going to be in the book of Ruth for four weeks. And there are several different themes throughout this book. The book of Ruth is a love story. We're going we're gonna to see a love story in this book. It's a story about manhood and womanhood. And the way that those things are distinct and the way that those things intersect. It's a story about sacrificial love and care for others. And as our subtitle for our sermon series says it's a story about the providence of God and that's going to be the the primary focus that we have as we walk through this book and Ruth ultimately like every other book in the Bible is about the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ and so as we walk through this book I hope that we can together view it through the lens of God's sovereign providence over all things as a pointer to the coming of Christ for our salvation. That we can see through the book of Ruth that God is orchestrating all things in order that Christ's glory would be magnified above all else. So if you have, um, have your Bible turned to the book of Ruth, let's look together first at the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1. If you're following along with our listening guide, You'll see those, that first point there. And the first point is that the Lord takes away. The Lord takes away. Let's look together at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, the names of his two sons were Milon and Chilon. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. 
But Elimelech, excuse me, the husband of Naomi, died. and She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilon died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the book of Ruth comes immediately after the book of Judges in the order of the scriptures, but the opening words of the book tell us that it takes place during the time period that the book of Judges is talking about. And so I want to give you just a little bit of a picture of what the time of the Judges was like. Okay? And there are a lot of stories I could read in here, including one that is particularly gruesome. But I don't necessarily feel like I need to do that for you to get the big picture. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And you can turn there or you can listen along, but just listen to what is said about the people of Israel during this time period. So it is talking where we are in the context of what I'm about to read. You have Joshua who has led the people into the promised land after the death of Moses. And Israel gets into the promised land and they don't do what they're supposed to do. They were supposed to drive off all of these other people who were occupying this land and they didn't do it. They got in and said, eh, good enough. They got in and said, eh, some of those foreign women are kind of pretty, so let's marry them instead of marrying our own people like God said. And so they kind of just stop. And they start to go away from the things that God has told them. And Joshua kind of gathers them all up and says, listen, either you're going to do right or God's going to kill all of you. So do right. And so they do. But then Joshua dies And that generation dies, and then we get to verse 10. It says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and, all, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So here is Israel 
who has been carried through the wilderness, despite the fact that they have sinned repeatedly and God has sustained them, and they're given this land, and what do they do? They sin, and they sin, and they sin some more. And then God judges them, and they're carried off into captivity. They're sold into slavery. And then they groan, and they complain. And the Lord hears their groaning and takes pity on them, and He raises up a judge to free them. And then as soon as the judge dies, what do they do? They go right back to what they were doing before. And He says, every generation is worse than their fathers. Now listen, older folks, resist the urge to say amen, okay? Resist the urge. Because the issue here is not those ungrateful kids. The issue here is a picture of how we see the effects of sin continuing to increase, continuing to grow. Generation after generation after generation, this sin is more and more and more deeply embedded into who they are as people. It becomes more and more of an identifier of who they are. And so they are continuing to sin because they cannot stop themselves. They are only deterred by the threat of judgment. And sometimes not even then. And only when they have a judge in front of them who is speaking for the Lord saying, you are going to die if you don't knock it off, do they finally knock it off. And then as soon as that judge dies, it's kind of like a teenager. As soon as they're out of their parents' sight, they do whatever they're going to do. And so that's what's happening here. That's what's going on in the time period of the book of Judges. And if you continue to read, you will see this progression where it just gets worse and worse and worse until the end of the book of Judges where you see one of the most gruesome and horrific things in all of Scripture. And so here we have this family, this Israelite family, in the midst of this time period, and we see that there was a famine in the land as we go back to Ruth chapter 1. There was a famine in the land. This is a part, I would argue, of the continual cycle of disobedience and judgment of the Lord upon Israel. Because as we're going to see a little bit later in the book of Ruth, we're going to see that the Lord has given them food. So if the Lord is the one who's given it to them, then it stands to reason that the Lord is the one who has taken it away. Because what is happening is that as it says in Judges 21-25, in the last verse of the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Listen, folks, we might act as though this moral relativism is, is a new thing in society where everybody does whatever they want. I get to decide my own way. That ain't new, folks. That has been around as long as there has been sin. Okay, and that's what's happening here. And so there's this famine in the land. And so Elimelech and his wife and his two sons are driven away. They go to sojourn in the far off land of Moab. Now, when I say far off, it's on the other side of the Dead Sea. But it's still a pretty good walk. Okay, it's not just like around the corner. And so they go off to the land of Moab because there's food there. That's the reason they're going in search of of food. Now, notice in verse 2 
when it identifies this family, it talks about the fact that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. It wants us to know right off the bat that this, this family is a part of the family of King David. This family is a part of the family of King David. And we know from the rest of Scripture that the family of King David is where the Messiah comes from. And so right off the bat, there's something significant about this family. And the writer of the book of Ruth wants us to know that because they're identifying, not just that they're Jews, not just that they're of a certain tribe, but he's identifying all the way down to which family they're in, which city they're from, because he wants us to know. They want us to know that this has a bigger picture biblical connection. And so they're there in Moab, and Elimelech dies. He dies. And she is left, Naomi, his wife, is left with her two sons. And in verse 4, it tells us that they took Moabite wives. Now, the timing of this is unclear. Some scholars say that this is chronological. Dad died, then the sons took wives. Maybe, maybe not. I don't think it really matters. The issue at hand here is that they took foreign wives. Now, there was no specific biblical prohibition against taking Moabite wives. There were other people groups that they were absolutely restricted, forbidden from taking wives from those people. But Moabites were not on that list. At the same time, it was always discouraged for the Israelites to take wives from among other peoples. Not because of any sort of racial purity, not because of any sort of cultural purity, but strictly because they served foreign gods. And as always happens, as always happens, if you've ever known somebody who says that they are a committed Christian and they marry someone who is not, you know what never happens? Almost never you very rarely see that, that person who's not a Christian become a Christian. What you see is the person who is a Christian fall away from the Lord. They start chasing after the things that their spouse is chasing after. And that's what happened with Israelites. When they would marry these foreign women, they would start chasing after their gods. And so God said, don't do that because you're going to end up in idolatry. Don't do that. And so here they are, married to Moabite women, and then they die. They've been in the land of Moab about 10 years, and now both of her sons die. We don't know what happened. We don't know how Elimelech or his sons died. They could have been ill, could have been a tragic accident. They could have been murdered for all we know. The point is not how they died, but that they died. And so now we have this woman Naomi, who is older because she has adult male sons, so we know that she is older, and then she has these two daughters-in-law, and they don't have any children. So we see in this position this, this group of three women without husbands, and Naomi especially has zero family in this place. And especially in this day and time, this is an incredibly vulnerable position to be in. Because what happens here is that the, these women end up carried off into slavery or they end up as beggars to be taken advantage of by anyone who comes across them. 
And so what we see here is that the Lord is taking these things away. We see that they have, she has a husband, she has sons, and now they're gone. And it's just her and these two Moabite women. And I want, what I want you to notice especially is that here in the beginning of the book of Ruth, the focus is not on Ruth. The focus is on Naomi. This book could just as easily be called Naomi and Ruth because they are both main characters in this story. And so here's Naomi, and she has had her land taken from her, her people taken from her, her husband, her sons. And because her sons had no children, her lineage has been taken from her. Everything stops. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a moment because there might be some of you in this room that take issue with that language, that have a problem with me saying that the Lord has taken these things away. Maybe you've been taught that the Lord only does the good stuff. The bad stuff is all the devil. Listen, in Job, we see how this all works. We see a picture of the backdrop of this, right? We see behind the curtain, and we see Satan working against Job. But we know, number one, Satan cannot do anything unless the Lord allows him to. And number two, this is the most important. Job chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. After the first round of the things that have happened to Job. So he has lost his home. He's lost his children. He's had all these things happen. He's lost all of his wealth and his livestock. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job rightly pinpointed that no matter who was the one at work in taking these things, it is the Lord's sovereign will. And the Bible affirms that by saying this immediately after this. In all this, Job did not sin, or charge God with wrong. So we need to have a larger understanding of how God works than simply God does good, devil does bad, the end. Because Job says the Lord gave, the Lord took away, and the Bible says he did not sin or charge God with wrong in saying that. And so we must rightly with Scripture say that the Lord is the one who gives and takes. Nothing happens outside of the will of God. God is the sovereign over all creation. We cannot escape that fact. If there is anything in creation that God is not sovereign over, then God ceases to be God. And that is not a universe that any of us should want to live in. A universe that is defined by random chaos that God has no control over. How do we ever find comfort or peace in our suffering and in our hard circumstances if God is not sovereign? And that is what we must, with Scripture, understand. The Lord takes away. That's what we see in the first five verses of the book of Ruth. The next thing that we see in verses 6 through 18 is we see that the Lord unites. The Lord unites. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Naomi is out working in the fields, which is the only thing she can really do at this point. She's out working in the fields and she hears that the famine has lifted from the land of Israel. The Lord has visited his people and has given them food. So again, like we said before, the famine was the work of the Lord. And now he had visited them again and given them food. And so she decides that she's going to return to her people. This is a long journey for a woman to make, for three women to make, without protection, without anyone to guard and cover them. And so she tries to dissuade Orpah and Ruth from coming with her. She tries to tell them, stay here with your family. Go find new husbands. I'm hopeful and prayerful that the Lord will give you rest and give you families and and bless you and give you children. And initially, they both resist. They both say, no, 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 we're with you because they are united to her. This is something that the Lord has done. The Lord has united this family together. But she goes on and she says, but if you come with me, this is all your lot in life is ever going to be. I am never going to be able to provide you a husband. I am too old to get a new husband. And even if I got a husband right now and I got pregnant today, you know how long you're going to have to wait before this son would be old enough for you to marry? Would be old enough to, to take care of you? It's too long. Now I'm going to pause here because we need to address something else in this book. And that is the idea of a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. The Lord has made a mechanism to preserve the lineage of families. And what would happen is that if a man were to die before having children with his wife, one of his brothers would marry her and have children with her. And the first child that is had under the Lord's provision would actually be the deceased brother's child. 
It is a way for God to carry on the lineage of those who died before having children. And so, if there are no brothers who can do this, there are closer, there are close relatives who can. And this is going to come up later in our story. So this is important. But this is what Naomi is talking about. She's talking about this idea of a kinsman redeemer. There are no other brothers to marry you, to carry on lineage with, to give you children before himself. That is not a possibility here. And she's been gone for 10 years from her people. She has no idea what awaits her back home. No clue if this is even a possibility. If there's ever going to be anyone who can carry on this lineage. And so she says this provision that God has made for his people is not available to you through me. So turn back and go back. And notice what Naomi says in verse 13. Again, I just want to point out the hand of God. She says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi recognizes that this is God's work, but notice who she hurts for. She hurts for her daughters-in-law. This is another sign of the unity that they have as a family. She is recognizing how hard it is for them that she is not able to provide, that the Lord has done this against her and it is impacting them. And so, at this moment, Orpah goes back. They weep together and Orpah goes back. But the Bible says that Ruth clings to her. Clings to her. And she says to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go back. And Ruth says, no. Where you go, I go. She goes so far as to say, where you die, I die. And then, I love this so much, what she says in verse 17. She says, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, at first glance, what we see there is an oath before God. But notice something in your Bible. The word Lord there is in the little small caps. Anytime you see that, it is a delineation of the Lord's covenant name, Yahweh, being used. She calls God, she is a Moabite, and she calls God by his covenant name. She is not only identifying herself with Naomi as a part of Naomi's family, she is identifying herself as a part of Naomi's people who serve and follow the Lord God. That's what I want you to notice here is that she's not just saying, I really love my mother-in-law, so I'm going to go with my mother-in-law. She is saying, I love the Lord and I am going with you to be with you and serve the Lord. Whatever the Lord gives us, whatever the Lord takes away from us, I am with you. Where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. And I'm going to be buried right next to you because we are united together in the Lord. The Lord unites. Ruth fully commits herself to God and to his people. And then in verses 19 through 22, the last thing we see is that the Lord provides. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. 
And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So we see a few different ways here that the Lord provides. The first way is that they make it safely from Moab back to Bethlehem. Two women traveling alone make it safely back after this long journey. That is a miracle in and of itself. And so here they are, they come into town and people recognize her. It says the whole town was stirred up because here is this woman who left here with a husband and sons and now she's back alone and she brought a Moabite woman with her. This is weird. The whole town recognizes this is odd. Something is happening here. And so everyone is stirred up. And Naomi's response is to say, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me Mara. Back in scriptural times, in biblical times, names carried a lot more meaning than they do now. Okay? Some of you might know what your name means. Some of you probably don't. I have no idea what my name means. I know what my last name means. It's Taylor. It means one who fixes clothes. But I have no idea what my first name means, if it even means anything. Okay? But in this day and time, parents would name their children things specifically because they had these dreams about what they wanted them to be or what kind of characteristics they would have. And one of the funny things about the people in the Bible is that often they lived up to their names. They often lived up to their names or they would change their names or God sometimes would give prophets specific names to give their children as a picture of how he felt about Israel. You think you got a raw deal from your parents with your name. Imagine having the name, not my people and having to go to school with that name. And so here, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. It means pleasant. And she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. She wants, to be, she wants her name to be changed from pleasant to bitter. And why does she want that? Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Again, Ruth chapter 1 shows us the Lord is the one who is doing these things. Ruth chapter 1 is telling us over and over again about the sovereignty of God in all things. And she says something here that I think all of us can identify with. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I think, brothers and sisters, we can all identify with that. I think all of us at different points have felt like we went away full and came back empty. That we went and we poured ourselves out so much that we have nothing else left and it's all gone. We have nothing to show for it. Naomi went away from her people, blessed by God, a husband and sons, and she comes back with nothing. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? 
But notice something. Notice when they arrived. They arrived just at the beginning of the barley harvest. They arrive just at this precise moment that they can go out into the fields and glean so they have something to eat. God provided safety for them on this journey. God provided them each other. He has united them together and provided some semblance of a family unit for them. And he has provided for them in that they arrive in town precisely at the moment where they have provision to eat. The Lord provides. The Lord provides. God continues providing even in the midst of suffering and sorrow, even when you go away full and come back empty, God is still providing for you. You might feel that way right now. You might be sitting there today feeling like, I went away full and I came back empty. You're still here. The Lord is still giving you breath. He is still upholding you by the word of his power. He has given you a church family that loves and cares for you and wants to walk with you through all seasons of life, whether hard or joyful. The Lord will never leave you or forsake you because he cares for you. He has made this promise to you because he loves you. And he is working all things for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you are in Christ, everything is for your good. Even if you suffer and die, it is for your good. Because as Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I will never understand Christians' strong intensity to try to avoid death to try to hold off being with Jesus Christ because it's gain. It is the greatest good that we could have. If the Lord gave me cancer tomorrow, I would be sad. I would be sad that I may not see my children grow up. But I know that I'm going to be with Jesus. Even in the midst of my suffering, he is providing and he is doing the same for you. And so, what do we see in Ruth chapter one? We see that the Lord is working in all things. That the timing of these things in Naomi and Ruth's lives happened at just the right point, that they would arrive at just the right time. That God is working all of these things. And so listen, brothers and sisters today, my encouragement to you, don't doubt his provision. Don't doubt his power. Don't doubt his sovereignty. We should not be afraid of suffering. We should not look upon suffering with hopelessness. We should not see these things and go, oh, here we go again. How am I ever going to get through this? But we should look upon these things and we should rejoice and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because do you know what it is? It is an opportunity for you to testify about the goodness of God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And how does Job close it? Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is what our hearts should cry no matter what. Everything is good, 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything's fallen apart. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You're having victory over sin. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You're struggling with sin. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you know why? Because no matter what happens, Jesus Christ is getting glory. And you have God working for your good. And so today, my encouragement to you as we get ready to have our time of the Lord's Supper to trust in God. If you are here today and you know Jesus Christ, these words are for you. These words should be a comfort to your heart and to your soul. And if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, none of this helps you. None of this helps you aside from this one thing, that what we are going to see in the book of Ruth is God preserving the lineage of his people that Christ would come and save sinners, that he would come and die to rescue us from sin. And so if you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, my encouragement to you is to trust in him with all your heart. Repent of your sins, turn away from your sinfulness, and trust in God, trust in Christ who came and died to free you from your sin. Do not submit yourselves over and over again to a yoke of slavery in sin, but trust in Christ. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, I will be down front. And if you would like to speak with me, please come and talk with me. I would be glad to pray with you, to share with you, to help you to understand and know how Jesus can be your Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story, for this book that we see the beauty of how you are providing and working and uniting in all things. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this time as we take the Lord's Supper together, Lord, that you would unite our hearts together, that you would help us to see your provision, that we would trust you in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.